Welcome to the church family that is lifting lives through living love, inspiring hope, filling with faith, and transforming our world. These recorded messages are made available so that you might have additional opportunities to stay connected with us, and then you might learn and grow in your faith. God bless you as you hear the word today. And now, the message. A reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside to pray by himself. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come out to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So to get today's story, I got to kind of take you back a little bit to the first sermon I preached in this series, which that particular Sunday was about negative 20 degrees wind chill, and I think there are about 20 people here in the church. So some of you may have missed that message, so I want to just recap just a little bit. Uh, we were talking about discipleship and the journey of discipleship, and I shared, you know, the goal, the, the telos, the Greek word, the end towards which discipleship is pointed, is the idea that the disciple can eventually do what the master does. That's the whole goal and purpose of discipleship is to train the disciple to become like the master. And I share with you then a, a leadership development model that's kind of out there in the world, which I think captures discipleship really well. The leadership model goes like this. I do, you watch. Then I do, you help. Then you do, and I help. And finally, you do, I watch, although the, when I first learned this leadership developmental, it wasn't you do, I watch, it was you do, others watch, and then the cycle kind of repeats itself all over again. That's the idea of discipleship. And so as the disciples follow Jesus, this is what they experienced. At the beginning, Jesus did a lot, and the disciples watched. He taught the crowds, and they sat there, and they listened. They watched and learned from him. He performed miracles, and the disciples watched and listened. They, they got to see how he lived out his message. You know, all the things that he preached, they got to see him live it out and, and his compassion, the way he treated every person with dignity and compassion and, and, and the way he, he, you know, he, he spent time, even his relationship with his father, they got to watch as Jesus will often withdrew to spend time alone with his father. Disciples got to watch 
watch, 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 watch. And then last week we talked about the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. And that was a shift because the disciples didn't just sit passively back and watch Jesus do the miracle. Jesus did the miracle, but then he invited them to participate with him, to help him in the process. And so as they passed the bread, suddenly they got to help. They got to be part of the action. And then I think today's story goes one step further because now Peter's you know, kind of thinking, well, I've watched, I've helped. Now I want to do, I want to do what you do, Jesus. I want to walk out on the water. But as we heard, as Michael read just a moment ago, as we'll see as I go through the story again with us in the sermon, Peter needed a heck of a lot of help because he didn't know what he was getting into. But we admire the courage that he got out on the waters in the first place. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, then you probably caught that this story is similar to a story we preached on just a couple weeks ago, the calming, of the, the calming of the Sea of Galilee. The stories are quite similar. That It begins with Jesus, who is worn out, tired from ministering to all the crowds, and he needs some, you know, some space, some retreat. And so he decides, I'm going to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the other side of the lake where I can get a little bit of rest. And he sends the disciples on ahead in the boat. And while they're out on the waters, a storm arises. So the, the stories have the same kind of contours. There's one crucial difference. In the sea, when he calmed the storm, in that first story, the disciples followed Jesus into the boat. Jesus was with them. But in this story, Jesus didn't go with him. He sent the disciples on ahead while he withdrew to the mountain to pray with his father. And so the end result is that this time, Jesus is not in the boat with the disciples when the storm hits. They are out on the waters all by their lonesome. And this is kind of a question. What will the disciples do when the one with authority over the storm is not there in the boat with them? Scholars point out that this, is, you know, this story has all kinds of connections to the experience of the early church, the early disciples. Because think about it. Jesus sent the disciples out into the world to be his witnesses, just like he sent the disciples across the sea. The, the early disciples, the early church, Jesus was not physically present with them. He had ascended into heaven. And so they were kind of sent out. So I guess what I'm saying is, and they encountered opposition, the early church did all kinds of opposition from leaders and authorities, even from sometimes within their own, you know, their own families, their friends, the, the wind was against them. And the question then is like, what will the early church do? What will the disciples do when Jesus is no longer with them? Can they do? Can they believe? Will they have faith? In fact, the early church, one of the most common symbols for the early church, one of the most ancient symbols of the church in general is the boat. It, you still see it preserved in things like the World Council of Churches. A lot of times you see it preserved in architecture. If you ever see a, you know ancient Gothic church with the ribs up above, it mimics the ribs of a boat. It was intentionally meant to look that way. In fact, where you are sitting right now, the sanctuary in church architecture, we call it a nave. You ever heard that word nave? In Latin, it means the boat. That's where we're all sitting as the early church. We're in the boat. We're facing the storms. And the question is, what are we going to do? So the disciples, my point is this, the disciples were sent to face the storm alone, just as eventually the disciples will be sent after the resurrection out into the world and they would face storms and opposition. 
and they would face it apart from Jesus, except that's not entirely accurate because the disciples weren't alone. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples, the last words of Matthew's gospel and the Great Commission, he says, lo, I am with you always, even until the ends of the age. And even though the disciples felt alone out on the, you know, out on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of the storm, they weren't. Jesus knew where they were. Jesus was tracking them. And when this, you know, the, the night was darkest, right before the dawn, when the disciples were worn out and tired and ready to give up, Jesus came walking towards them, walking upon the water. Now, what's the significance of that? Jesus walking upon the water. I'm sure you've seen, there's all kinds of magicians nowadays that have replicated this miracle using illusions and tricks. Uh, if you go to YouTube, there's a, um, you know, there's a substance called oobleck, which is like cornstarch and water. It's a non-Newtonian fluid that allows people to do all kinds of tricks upon the water. So, so it's like nowadays we can replicate this miracle, but we can't really, because we're just using tricks to get by. What did this miracle signify? Well, it wasn't just that Jesus could defy gravity. It's bigger than that. Because the walking on the water, if you go back through the Old Testament, let me, let me share with you a couple of passages from the Old Testament. This is beginning with Job, Job 9, 8. And this is Job speaking about God, says he, stre- he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. And then later on, God responds to Job and he asked the question rhetorically, have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? And then we got the Psalm that's speaking to God. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. In other words, again and again and again in the Old Testament, who walks upon the waters? Not people. God is the one who walks upon the water. And so this miracle that Jesus does, it's, it's not just a trick. It's not just a fancy little party favor, you know. It, it's not a YouTube video. It's a claim that Jesus, you know, when Jesus does this, he is in a sense, in essence, proclaiming himself God. It gets, let me go even further than that. The, the, the passage isn't about just his defiance of gravity. It's about his authority over the winds and the waves. That's what the walking upon meant. When you walked upon something in that culture, in that day and time, it was like you had authority and dominion over it. It's it's like in basketball, when you dunk all over somebody, you know, like that is your way of saying, I have authority over you. This is Jesus posterizing the Sea of Galilee. I have authority and power over you. The thing that is threatening and frightening the disciples, the thing that puts their lives in jeopardy, Jesus says, I have authority over that. Not just now, but for all the time, all the time to come, I have authority over everything that threatens the church. My people, they belong to me. So Jesus is expressing authority over this. The problem is, is that disciples don't, not just that they don't understand, they don't get it, but they don't even recognize Jesus. He, he, remember, after the resurrection, some of the disciples don't recognize Jesus either. When they see him walking toward them, they don't recognize him. They don't recognize his presence with him. They don't recognize and draw comfort from, from Jesus coming to them. Instead, they cry out and they say, it's a ghost. Who is this that's walking towards us? And so Jesus replies to them and he says, take heart. It is I, don't be afraid. 
Except that's not what Jesus says. That's how we translate what Jesus said. Here's the interesting part. That middle sentence, it is I, it doesn't have a predicate. Literally what Jesus says in the Greek is, take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. And if you remember, I am, that's the name of God in the Old Testament. When Moses, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, and, and, and Moses was sent just like the disciples were sent. God sent Moses back to his people, back to face his past, back to face Pharaoh. And Moses was afraid and he says, well, who am I to say sent me? When people ask me, who, who gave you this authority? Who sent you? He says, you are to say, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And when Jesus appeared to the disciples walking by, he says, take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. What a powerful, amazing claim that Jesus makes in that moment. But then comes the kicker. When Peter sees Jesus, when he hears Jesus declare, I am, then he says, Lord, if it is you, Command me to come to you upon the water. (laughs) Now, scholars kind of debate what this moment is about. They all kind of agree Peter is testing Jesus in some way, right? Because if is a testing word. Don't we all ask if questions sometimes in our faith? You know, if you're really good, God, then why do you allow this to happen? If you really love me, if you're real, God. This is an if moment where Peter is testing his faith. I don't think he's testing Jesus so much as he's testing his own faith, his own capacity. You said, Master, that I could do what you do? Okay, if that's true, then tell me now to walk out to you. He's testing his own faith, his own capacity. What can he do through faith in Jesus? And amazingly, Jesus responds with a single word. He says, come, come on. The one who has authority over the wind and the waves, the one who has authority over sickness, evil spirits, death itself, he now confers that authority to Peter and says, you can do what I can do, come walk with me upon the waters. And amazingly, Peter does. At first he does. I mean, that's the true miracle of the story is that that through Jesus's power, Peter has authority over the winds and over the waves. He's not afraid for just a moment. But then it says, Peter noticed the the wind and the waves. He began to be frightened and he sank. Those three words, he noticed, he feared, and he sank. That's the downward spiral for Peter. And that's the downward cycle for a lot of us when we try to put our faith in action. When we were talking about this as a clergy team, uh, Pastor Kim used this phrase. She said, she said, I think this was a moment of imposter syndrome for Peter. 
I wasn't familiar with imposter syndrome. I didn't know exactly what the, you know, what's imposter syndrome. So I looked it up. I did a little research. Uh, there, in, the 19, in 1978, the, the phrase was coined by uh, two clinical psychologists, Pauline, uh, uh, Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes. And in 1978, they set out to research women who were highly successful. They interviewed 150 women who either had PhDs, were at the top of their field, were recognized by their peers as successful. And so they interviewed 150 women. And what they found is that even though these women had all achieved great, incredible success, most of them did not feel successful. They attributed their success to to dumb luck or circumstances. They, 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 They felt like, you know, they had done a pretty good job of convincing everyone that they were more intelligent, more competent than they actually were, and they were all afraid of being found out. And so they coined the phrase, imposter syndrome. And the amazing thing in part is that fear of being found out actually drove their achievement to accomplish more and more and more. So Glance and Imes, they were trying to figure this out. And their, their, their explanation of this is that, you know, in 1978, they said, well, this is because of the social conditioning of women. That in our culture, women have been conditioned to think they're inferior to men. That's what gives them this sense of inferiority, this sense of being an imposter, even when they're successful. But as time has gone on, studies around imposter syndrome have found out that it affects all genders equally. And it doesn't just affect, you know, people who are failures, but it affects especially those who are high performers. You know, I know we live in a culture where there's a lot of high performers in our church. It affects high performers equally. And that's kind of an interesting thing about, let me, let me define it real quickly for us, just so we can get that on the board. Imposter syndrome is the condition of feeling anxious and not experiencing success internally despite being high-performing in external objective ways. That's imposter syndrome. And I would be willing to bet all of us at some point have felt it at some point or another. And the thing about imposter syndrome is you don't just experience it at those moments where you're failing and sinking like Peter was. A lot of times we experience imposter syndrome at our moments of highest success. Like we get to celebrate the success, but then in the aftermath of success, a sneaky voice sneaks into our head and it whispers, you know, that, that question that comes to us and says, whew, can, how long can I keep this up? Can I do this again? Can I replicate this success all over again? And if I can't, if I can't make this happen again, then what does that say about me? Maybe it means that I'm a fraud. Maybe this means that success, happiness isn't real. And that fear of being found out as a fraud keeps driving us, pushing us to ever higher levels of performance until finally the wheels just come off because we can't keep it up anymore. Years ago, I heard a sermon uh, by Reverend Alan Story in South Africa. It's a gift to be in South Africa in Cape Town, Cape Town and, and, and hear Reverend Alan Story preach. Um, he referenced the work of a man named David White who differentiated with what he called daily work and life work. It's always stuck with me. He says, daily work is this. It's proving our worth, earning our acceptance through our success and achievement. It's what we all do every day. 
trying to earn our success, our, our, our prove our worth to others. It's to some degree what I'm doing right now. It's what you do when you're at your jobs. It's our daily work. And it happens on the surface of our lives. He says, but beneath that, there is our life work. And our life work is discovering our worth and receiving our acceptance. Apart from success and accomplishment, it takes place not on the surface, but deep down in our souls. And here's the crazy thing, he said, is that often daily work and life's work, they move in opposite directions, that we can be highly successful in our daily work and be a wreck when it comes to our life work. And sometimes things that happen to us that feel completely disastrous to our daily work, our ability to be productive. I'm talking about unemployment or divorce or any kind of large failure or sickness or illness that takes away part of our capability where we can't do what we once did before. Sometimes those things that feel disastrous to our daily work, you know, all those storms that you know, we feel like we're sinking, it might just be that those turn out to be essential experiences when it comes to our life work for us to discover who we are and who God is and to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves us. As a pastor, I have the privilege many times of sitting with people who have done their life work well. And just this last week, I visited someone in our church who is facing her own mortality. And yet, as I sat with her and she talked about being at peace, I thought to myself, this is someone who's done her life work well. And the reason I could spot it, that she had done her life work well, because I had no sense in that moment that there was any imposter speaking to me. She moved past that. And everyone I know who's done life work well, they've, They've faced the imposter. They've faced the fraud. They've gotten out on the waters. And maybe sometimes they've sunk. But they've learned that when they cry out for Jesus, he's right there willing to help them and save them. Have you done your life work well? So Peter gets out on the water. What were the three words? He noticed. He feared and he sank. That's the imposter syndrome in option, you know, operating right there, right? But here's what I give Peter credit for. That when he began to sink, he didn't fake it. He didn't keep dog paddling and pretending he was walking upon the water. He recognized, I'm going down. And he cried out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And the Bible says, immediately, Jesus drew him out of the water. I love that word, immediately. He didn't let him sink for one moment. He drew him out of the water and he said, oh, you of little faith, which is kind of Jesus's almost nickname to the disciples in Matthew's gospels. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now remember back, I said, this is a connection to the calming of the storm. There he said, oh, you of little faith to all the disciples, why were you afraid? But here Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now in Greek, this word doubt is distazo. 
And it's a unique word because it only appears twice in the Bible. Both times it's Matthew who uses it. No other New Testament writer uses this word, distazo. There's another word for doubt, diacrino, which is more like the, it means to judge or contend. It's like the posture of a determined you know, skeptic or cynic, you know, one who just tears others, tears faith down. But distazo is not that. It literally, it's a compound word, die, meaning to, and stazo, meaning stand. So distazo means to stand in two places, to waver, to have one foot in faith and the other foot in fear. And this Matthew is saying is, 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 is what Matthew experienced, distazo, he wavered. And to me, this tells us something about faith, that faith is full of wavering, right? That faith is always a mixture of both courage and anxiety. That faith is always hearing the call of the Lord, yet also fearing the terror of the storm. Both those things are happening in the lives of every disciple, every follower of Jesus. I told you Distazo appeared twice, right? You want to know what the other time is? The Great Commission. After the resurrection. When Jesus is sending the disciples out, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything I've taught you, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son. When he sends them out, this is the you do, you fish for people moment. The disciples believed and they worshiped and yet some doubted. Even in that moment, on the mountaintop, watching Jesus go up into heaven, still they wavered because faith and doubt are always somehow present together. I mean, I wish faith was perfect. I wish faith was easy. I wish we could just say to a mountain, move, and it moved. The Bible sometimes makes it sound that easy, doesn't it? I wish we didn't have if questions that we didn't ask if God, or are you there, God, or is that you, God? We do, every single one of us. But let me say this, the story that we have today tells us something about faith. The faith is not walking perfectly upon the water. Faith is the decision to get out of the boat. That's the moment of faith. Have you ever seen the movie Deadpool? And I'm going to go there. For those who have seen the movie Deadpool, you know it's probably the last thing I should ever bring up at a church service. Those who haven't seen Deadpool, just forget your past. Don't ever watch it and you forget your pastor referenced it. But there's a speech at the end of the movie. It's a superhero movie, but it's very R-rated. So there's a speech at the end of the movie where Colossus is speaking to Deadpool. And he says this. He says, four or five moments, that's all it takes to be a hero. Four or five moments. Because people think, you know, if you're a hero, you're always a hero. You wake up a hero. You brush your teeth, you're a hero. You go to work a hero. He says, no, but there's really just four or five moments. And I would kind of contend that's kind of how it is with faith. Yes, faith is a way of life. It's a way of seeking God, a way of loving your neighbor, a way of trying to live a life of integrity. That's faith. But there are moments in everyone's life maybe four or five moments where your faith becomes real, where you face a choice to get out of the boat and get out on the waters. 
for me, I mean, I can think of the first time I made the commitment to run a half marathon with Chamberlain. That was a get out of the boat moment. Going to Haiti, that was a get out of the boat moment. You probably had some get out of the boat moments too. Let me tell you what's great about getting out of the boat. You face your imposter. When you're out there on the boat, when you're out there on the water doing whatever you're doing, here's the blessing. What you are doing in those moments, no one else can take it away from you. It's real. It's you and Jesus. And you may sink, you, you, may, you may feel like a fool, but that's okay because if your eyes are fixed on Jesus, you worry a little bit less about what other people are thinking or saying. You worry a little less about your performance because you're out on the waters. You're experiencing the reality of God's grace and mercy in real time. And that's where God calls us. So some of you may be facing this morning, I don't know. Some of you may be facing one of those moments, a choice that's set before you, a storm that's taking place in your life and God's calling you, do you trust me? Are you with me? Is it real? And if so, get on the waters. Some of you may face the decision. You feel like, I, I, just, I always leave this open to the possibility. Some of you may have never fully made a commitment to Jesus Christ. You've heard people talk about them. You've come to church, you like it, but you don't know if you've ever turned your life. To me, that's the biggest get out of the boat moment you can have is when you pray for the first time, God, I turn over my life to you. I give you my heart. I give you my all. I want to follow you as my Lord. And if you want to know how to do that and how to do it well, us pastors are here. We would love to guide you through that. But maybe you're not facing such a huge decision this morning. That's okay. As I said, four or five moments, not all of us are going to have one of those moments right now. But I do want to give you this morning encouragement to take a practice step by going out to the mission fair, right when we end worship, and thinking, looking, where can I step out of the boat? Remember, the church is the boat, but how do we get out of the boat? Where can I take a small step to serve, to be Christ's hands and feet out on the waters? And you may feel like, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, if, I, if you volunteer for SAWS, I feel like my construction skills aren't up that high. I'm not sure what I'm doing, or I may be uncomfortable in this context. It's outside my comfort zone, or I don't even know if I have the time. It's okay. I'm just encouraging a small step. Because if you make a small step, you might discover that in those places out on the water, that God is real, that he is with you. And even if you feel like a fool, in those moments, you're not faking faith. You're not an imposter. You're doing something real and you're doing it with Jesus and you're experiencing his grace and his mercy in real time, you're walking the walk of discipleship. So I hope this morning you hear somewhere in your heart Jesus' invitation to Peter. A simple word, come. Wherever you may be, come. Come out on the waters. Meet me there. And I'll show you what the journey of faith is really like. Amen.